our Bible study for tonight. And before, before we even talk about where the passage is, um, I want to tell you about something from, from one of my all-time favorite books. It's actually authored by a local author by the name of Neil Stevenson. It's called Cryptonomicon. And I, I don't expect it to be your favorite book by any means, um, but it, it, there's this portion in the book. What it's actually about is cryptography, codes and the breaking of codes, things like that. And it tells the story both of a man who's a cryptologist in World War II, a code breaker in World War II, as well as his grandson, who's doing modern cryptology today in Seattle. Um, but the, what happens in the book at one place is Alan Turing, the guy from the imitation game, uh, you know, you Benedict Cumberbatch fans, um, that guy, Alan Turing, is riding a bicycle. And for almost seven pages, you're reading about Alan Turing riding a bicycle, and you learn enough to recognize that his bicycle has two very big flaws with it, a, a busted chain, just a weak link in the chain, and in, a, in a, a wobbly spoke. And that doesn't seem like a big deal, but every time those two align in the same place, meaning that link in the chain overlaps with that wobbly spoke, the chain falls off. It then goes on to explain that that would make the bike completely useless if that happened on every rotation, but it really only happens every 500 rotations or so. And so Alan Turing, being the genius that he is, just mentally counts the rotations and hops off the bike every 500 and gives the chain a yank. So as you can imagine, the first time I'm reading this, I am so confused on why I'm learning about Alan Turing's bicycle. It doesn't stop there. He then starts to lay out a mathematical equation for what's going on, and so he starts to lay out what it looks like with every link corresponding to a letter, uh, you know, and when it happens with the chain, and he's got this all out, and he lays it out all on the table, and he says, now, code working is just like this, and he changes it for a plain text and a cipher, and your mind goes, I understand cryptography. I didn't even know I was learning about cryptography, right? And it's, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Um, but the reality is we do that all the time. Language itself is inherently metaphorical. Uh, if I can demonstrate that, when I say the word tree, picture one, go ahead. Now answer me this question, riddle me this. The tree that you're imagining right now, do you imagine it's the same tree I'm thinking about? No, right? The word tree is a stand-in for a very broad sense set of reality. And so language is inherently metaphorical. And even with that in the place, all the time we find ourselves going, it's kind of like, and providing some sort of illustration. Here's just a baseline premise that I want to lay on the table tonight. Something that we won't come back to till, till the very end of what we're looking at. But is it possible, is it possible that God does the same thing? Is it possible that he's bred into life, created intentionally into the patterns and the ways that we live, pictures of something else? Places that are really, in and of themselves, valuable. There's nothing wrong with a bike ride, right? Even if you're Alan Turing and you could be saving the world. There's nothing wrong with a bike ride. But what if that bike ride is really about something bigger? What if it's about something deeper? And like I said, what if, what if that's part of reality as we know it? Now, if I could press the button a little bit further before we open our text tonight, isn't this something that Jesus seems to understand throughout his ministry? How often does he go, if you really want to understand this, all you have to do is look at this. Right? Jesus' teaching is inherently image-driven. It's metaphorical. And you, when you add that to the fact that Jesus is the God who created the ravens, he tells us to consider. 
right? That Jesus is the God who created the lilies that he told us that we should pay attention to. Suddenly there's a depth there that we don't always think of. Okay, set that aside. We'll come back to that later. What we're actually going to talk tonight about is sex. Uh, we are getting into a new study tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, we've been out of Paul's letter to the Corinthians for a while, but as is our habit in this church, we usually just roll through um, books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Chapter 7 as a whole, we've entitled, entitled the series, It's All Good. And here's the things that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about sex, marriage, and singleness. That's what we're going to deal with over the next few weeks. Um, so with that being said, if you have a Bible tonight, you're going to want to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you do not have a Bible, there should be one sitting near you in the back of a pew. Um, and right in the front of it, you'll find an index. 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's letters, part of the New Testament. And so if you look under the New Testament heading, um, you shouldn't have any trouble finding 1 Corinthians and we'll be in chapter 7. Now, if it wasn't enough to set the bar so far away from our text, to lay out that groundwork that I gave you and somehow figure out a way in the next 40 to 50 minutes to get there, um, I'm also going to try and use an extended metaphor tonight that I'm not terribly comfortable with. Uh, and the reason is because if you remove the metaphor from its context, it's going to sound like I'm a gun nut advocating for the NRA. And frankly, this isn't a gun illustration. It's a physics il illustration. It just happens to involve a gun. Okay? Uh, now, here's, here's the premise, okay? What I want you to recognize tonight, just to lay this illustration on the table, um, is that the difference between a gun and just a bullet laying in an explosion is an important one. Put that in the drawer. Um, chapter 7, I just want to read the first five verses tonight, and then, then I want to pray. Now, Paul says, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's pray. Father, I feel very deeply in my own conscience that this topic, sexuality, is something that we talk way too much about and don't talk enough about in a completely different way. So I pray that you would help us to, to navigate this and especially recognizing that each and every one of us has uh, approaches this text not in the void, not, not disconnected from life, but growing in the soil of a culture. 
And so we come to this text with lenses firmly in place, already having answers for the questions, what is sex and what is it for? Even if we're unaware of them, they play out in our life all the time. And so I pray that you would help us to see a different perspective tonight and that we would recognize how important that different perspective may, may be in our own life. We ask this in your name. Amen. Three simple things tonight. Three things that I think are helpful for us to accomplish. First, I want to lay out the context a little. It, it, it may seem a little bit obvious, but it's worth reminding you that as we start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're starting in the middle, right? We're starting with things that have already been said. On top of that, another portion of the context that we need to lay out first thing tonight is the fact that Paul didn't write this directly to you. You can turn back a few pages. You won't find your name on the addressee. Right? He wrote this to a church in the ancient Roman city of Corinth around the first century. And so remembering the rest of who this church is is essential to us understanding tonight. So first, a little bit of context. Second, what we, did, what we see here, even though we only get a window in it, and it's not an, a complete view, but it's still a very good view. The second thing I want to talk about tonight is a Christian sexual ethic. In other words, I want to talk about the principles the big questions of what is sex and what is it for. And then lastly, and this is just as important, I want to get practical. This is a very practical text. Paul is addressing a very practical issue in a very practical way, and he presents very practical reasons. And so I don't want to fall short of just giving you theory without bringing it down to earth tonight, but I want to do those three things. And so as we do, let's just begin with context. And you can see this context functioning even in the opening words of verse 1. Look at it again. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. You see that? Now, that's not, for one, that's a very big transition in the book. If you were to read back over the first six chapters, Paul has started by addressing his concerns. Not things that they wrote him about, probably not things that they were really interested in him finding out about, but other people had come to him and said, hey, are you aware of what's going on in the new church plant in Corinth? And as he's heard about these things, he says, okay, I need to write a letter to respond. I need to address these issues. And effectively, what he argues in the first six chapters is the way that you're thinking about life, the way that you're treating one another, the way that you decide who's great and who's lowly, who's good and who's bad, the good life versus the bad life is completely disconnected from the good news of Jesus Christ that I brought to you. He says, we need to get back to basics and we need to uproot all this stuff that doesn't fit, okay? However, we also find here, according to this sentence, that another reason he's writing is because he was written to, right? He says, now concerning the things you wrote me about. And so Paul has received a letter from the church in Corinth and somewhere over the course of that letter is questions, is concerns, is expressions of thoughts that they're either trying to make clear antagonistically to Paul, like, hey, Paul, we've graduated beyond your thoughts, we know better, here's what we've come to understand, or more likely are going, are we right on this? And coming to him as an instructor and going, hey, here's our thoughts, is this accurate? Or how should we respond? It becomes pretty clear if you read the entire letter to the church in Corinth that you don't have one giant antagonistic church against Paul that's just gone a different way. You have all of these factions that don't have any unity. So, for example, he makes a big deal about explaining celibacy tonight in a way that critiques it as being ultimate and final. 
contrast that with the fact that in chapter 6, he spent a lot of time saying, oh, by the way, it's not appropriate for Christians to visit prostitutes. And so there's one camp in the church in Corinth that is saying, even if you're married, you should stop having sex because that's the good life. That's the pure life. And then there's another faction who's going, it doesn't matter if you pay money for sex with a stranger. It's not a big deal. Okay. And so there's this there's these things that he's addressing. It's a complex nature. And here's, here's how the challenge plays out for us tonight. We don't have the letter that the church of Corinth went to, wrote to the Apostle Paul. We just have Paul's response. And that can be a very frustrating and important problem. Um, many of you have probably recognized that if you're on public transportation and somebody is talking on a cell phone, even if they're not you know, as loud as I am, it can be super annoying, right? It's, it's very difficult, it's hard to drain it out, and it feels frustrating. Now, recognize tonight, recognize that if two people are talking in the same volume right in front of you, it doesn't bother you at all. Social scientists tell us there's a very particular reason for this, okay? It's because even as I'm talking right now, your mind is constantly making predictions at, about the words that are going to come out of my mouth next, okay? And when you hear the rest of that conversation, it's relatively satisfying to be confirmed over and over and over again. The problem is when you're listening to somebody on a cell phone conversation, you only get half the conversation. So all the time there's these words coming with no context, out of nowhere. You don't know what's in the gaps, and so your mind that's trying to be rational and reasonable and an interpreter is constantly frustrated, and so you find it irritating. Okay? Now, we have that same problem here tonight. We know the topic that they wrote Paul about. Clearly, they wrote him about issues of sex, singleness, and marriage. But what exactly their concerns were, or their questions, or especially what their opinions were, we have to do a little bit of guesswork to figure out. Okay? And that can be a challenge. However, we have a very helpful clue tonight that's very easy to miss. Notice what he says next, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now if you have the ESV translation, if you picked up the Bible in the back of the pew, for example, or if you have a newer NIV, like a post-1990s New International Version, or some other relatively modern translation, you will see that sentence, starting with it is good, in quotations. Now, the Greek language that this was penned in and the manuscripts that we base our English translation off of don't have any punctuation. Greek language didn't use punctuation like English does. Okay? So those quotation marks are added by the translator to help you understand and therefore are a layer of interpretation. Right? The interpretation that they're trying to bring out is that what comes out of Paul's mouth here is not his words, first and foremost. For starters, just notice the difference between those quotation marks being there and not, okay? If we read this as a quotation and Paul says, now concerning what you wrote, and then he quotes it, and I quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, that's one thing. But if these are the words of Paul, and the Bible is what it claims to be, and therefore these are the words of God, then we have a very different thing. One is the opinions of a fallible and possibly wrong human being, and the other is a thus saith the Lord, this is truth, okay? And to be honest, the church has often read this second sentence as the words out of Paul's mouth, okay? In fact, there's very, um, 
cultural reasons to do so. In fact, the church in Corinth, even if they're being quoted, this idea came from somewhere. And so, benefit of the doubt me tonight, let's just start with the premise that I'm presenting that it's a quotation. I'll explain why we know it is in just a second. But in the Roman world, in the world of the first century, in fact, in most traditional societies, there has been at least some group called aesthetics or monastics. And effectively, this community said the way that you live a pure or a holy life is by avoiding something out there, okay? Aestheticism assumes that the good life is a life disconnected from bad things, okay? And that's what this sentence would be expressing. It's good to avoid sexuality. It's good to never touch a woman sexually. However, the problem trying to insert this into the mouth of Paul is that very quickly you have a hard time fitting it into the rest of Scripture. In fact, aestheticism itself is something that Paul stands against. He says, for example, in the book of Colossians that commandments like do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which is what aestheticism says. Don't imbibe these things. Don't interact with these things. The problem is external, so just keep yourself clean. He says those have the appearance of godliness, but they do nothing to overcome the flesh. In other words, what he says is the problem's not external, it's internal. And so external avoiding won't do anything. To give you an illustration from the Old Testament, God judges the world through a universal flood. One man and his family survive, and we still find sin worthy of judgment after the flood. Why? Because sin got on the boat with Noah, right? It wasn't all them that were the problem, it's all of us here that's the problem. But to point to another way where, where this seems difficult to fit into the scriptures is there's another it is not good in the Bible, and it seems inherently adverse, even at opposition, at loggerheads with this. And it comes very early in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, God has created all of these parts of the world, and there's a pattern developed, a literary pattern. God creates light, and he says it is good. God creates uh, water and says that it's good. God fills that water with life and says it's good. This pattern's repeated. If you read chapters one and two, you'll get this rhythm. And then suddenly, God creates Adam and he says it is not good that man should be alone. And the idea is not just, I shouldn't have just made one person, right? As you follow the story through, that aloneness that he's talking about has everything to do with marriage and sexuality. He creates not just a woman, but a wife for Adam. And that aloneness is solved in, in Adam's words when he says, you were bone of my bone, you were flesh of my flesh, right? And it says that the two will become one flesh. What solves the not good of Genesis chapter 2 is the sexual relationship of Adam and Eve. And so you have, you, you're stuck and you go, well, which is it then? Is it not good that man should be alone? Is there a viable and valuable purpose for a sexual relationship? Or is it not good to touch a woman? Because it has to be one or the other. There's another reason why this is most likely a quotation. Okay? And most, almost across the board, almost every modern Greek scholar and biblical scholar stands on believing that this is a quotation. But another reason is because Paul goes on, he doesn't just talk about this, but he goes on later to talk about, well, what do you do if your spouse dies? And he gives advice. 
And the advice he gives, if it's better never to be in a sexual relationship, seems contrary to that idea. And so Paul ends up giving practical advice for people here that says sex is not a good thing. It'd be better if you avoided it. And over here saying this is still a viable and good option and something that you should consider. However, I think the most compelling reason to believe that this is a quotation is because Paul does this over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians. If you were with us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've already seen what the scholars sometimes call a Corinthian slogan. It's a saying that was a part of the church, and Paul speaks it, in air quotes, if you will, and then responds to it. And he doesn't just do this in chapter 6 and chapter 7, but he continues to do it in chapter 8 and chapter 10, almost a half dozen times throughout the letter. Okay? And so there's a substantial pattern of how Paul is explicitly making clear. And that's a way that we write and talk all the time, right? Sometimes we don't just leave the conversation implied by the context and we bring it out and we go, now you mentioned this, let me respond to that. Now, once again, let's remember why that's important. The question is here, how should we see sexuality? And there have been times in the history of the world in different cultures, and there's been times in the history of the church that has seen sexuality at best as a necessary evil. As, as a gross and, and awkward and dark thing, but it's the only way you get kids, and so it has to be done. In fact, based on this passage right here, the church has sometimes advised people and said, look, you need to procreate, so sex and marriage should be only when you're wanting to have kids, when you're in a place where you can have kids. All other sex is out of bounds, and they would point to a passage like this. I would say that's a tremendous misunderstanding, not just of this passage, of the, but the way that the Bible views sexuality as a whole. Okay, get back to that principle of aestheticism by way of illustration. The problem with aestheticism is it forgets that it is good of creation. It says effectively that what God has done is created a world full of bad things that need to be avoided, as if what he really wants to do in human life is test you. But even when we look at the test, the test, the one in Genesis chapter 3, right, where God does make a rule, and it seems strangely arbitrary, and says, here's the one thing you can't do, or there will be consequences. If aestheticism was right, what we'd have is some sort of, of gruel, you know, uh, some sort of basic and gross nourishing, but, but only nourishing food, or beautiful fruit. But that's not what we find at all. When God sets things up, he says, there's one tree you can't eat of. He says, however, there's a whole orchard of variety. There's all of these other things. All of them are yours for the taking. Okay. And so the problem with aestheticism is it assumes that God is just trying to trap us with pleasure. Whereas the God of the Bible is a creator who didn't come to a broken world, but created a good world. And so... One more place that we see this, not just in creation, not just in the fact that God goes, you know what, Adam is incomplete until he has a wife. Man is incomplete without woman. Uh, you know, relationship is incomplete without this reality of, of sex. Before those things, it's just the pattern we see in all of creation. But let me give you another place that we see this same reality of who God is. 
food is great. We love food, right? We're pro-food, and it is tr- it's just incredible what we can take out of raw ingredients that are sometimes discovered, right? Some of them we don't even think of being discovered anymore because we've been using them for so long. But all of these ingredients, and then through trial and error and creativity combined into something greater. Like, none of you have ever reached into your cupboard and opened up a bag of flour and just taken a big lick. And very few of you, I think, have sucked down the contents of a raw egg, right? And sugar may be the exception, but all of us know as great as raw sugar can be just on your tongue, a cake, when you take that flour and that sugar, you know, and, uh, and that egg and you combine it, that's something different. That's the world that we live in is, is that these good things exist. But let me tell you right now, as good as food is, there's not a single book of the Bible devoted to food. We don't have a book of of first cakes. It doesn't exist. We do, however, have a book, and not a small one, a sizable one, just as long as the letter to 1 Corinthians devoted to the beauty of sex. It's called the Song of Solomon. That book is so pro-sex that if you read it and you can get past the Eastern imagery, the metaphors that it uses aren't modern-day metaphors. It doesn't talk about skyscrapers and towers and cell phones. Instead, it talks about goats and sheep and pomegranates. But even there, sometimes you read a verse in that and you go, if, you, if, it, if that means what I think it means, I think I should be blushing right now. Right? It is tremendously not just sexual but positive in its sexuality. And in that book, just like Paul's conversation here, kids don't enter into it. Kids don't enter into it. You can read Song of Solomon in its entirety, and you may, I could be wrong here, you may find the presence of children, but not in the context of this love relationship between the beloveds. And not in the goal of their relationship, like, I love my husband because he will give me kids, or I'm enduring the reality of marriage because children are the most important thing. None of that. What you find is sex being celebrated as something as, that's God-given, beautiful, and to be enjoyed. And although it's easy to misread this passage as being against sex, as we'll see tonight, it is tremendously for sex. Okay. We've moved now from context to principles, and the first principles I want you to get is that according to the Bible, sex is not evil, and it's also not a necessary evil. And it's also not some irrelevant detail of life, okay? Let me ground that point for you because it's an important one. Sex is not a marginal topic in the Bible. I already told you that there's an entire book devoted to it. Um, But beyond that, the Bible is surprisingly sexual. It's full of sex, good and bad, high and low, positive and negative. I've told you about it before if you attend this church, but just in case, um, I have on my bookshelves at home an illustrated book of Genesis by the artist R. Crumb. He's a comic book artist. Now, R. Crumb, his style, if you've never seen it, is tremendously ugly. It's, it, it, you could never call it beautiful, but people do find it valuable. In fact, if you go to the Sam right now, there are some pieces from R. Crumb hanging on the wall at a current exhibit right along some of the great masters, which, frankly, to me, just aesthetically, I don't get it. But here's why I have this book on my shelves. Because he says in the introduction, look, I'm not a Christian. In fact, I'm an atheist. I believe that all religions are equally false, is what he says in the introduction. He says, however, I feel that in my 
illustration job of Genesis, I've been truer to the text than any Christian illustration of Genesis. He says, for as much as they believe this is the word of God, I feel like they've been less faithful to the text than I have. And you can just thumb through the pages and you see exactly what he's talking about. His book has explicit material in it, okay? And it recognizes, and his style adds to this, the ugliness of that explicit material, okay? The book of Genesis is not a pink jacket, right? It's, it's not a romance novel. A lot of the sex that we find in Genesis is incest. It's rape. It, it recognizes all of these horrible things and records them just like a newspaper was, not endorsing them and saying, this is the good life, but saying, this is how humans have lived. This is what these people actually did. And as you read through, not just in Genesis, but throughout the Bible, the Bible spends a tremendous amount of time talking about sexuality. And so it would be a mistake for us to relegate it to just being unimportant or not worth talking about or not a big deal. The Bible makes it a focal point, a central issue. What we see, instead of irrelevancy, instead of um, some sort of gross or evil but practically important, instead of a necessary evil, what we see in the Bible is a repeated refrain that sex is good. Now, if you're not a Christian, you go, hold up. There seems to be a whole lot of sex in the Bible that is not good, right? It spends a lot of time telling us about all the sex things I can't do. Way more time than it, you know, there's no manual on the other side that praises the positives. Uh... I would argue, and we'll see this tonight, that that's because sex is so good, not because it's so bad. Because sex is so important, not because it's so irrelevant. As we look at the rest of the principles embedded in this text tonight, I want to draw up that image of the gun again. Okay. You've got a bullet, and the Im implication of a bullet is a target. Right? I know we all have this view in our minds of hillbillies firing guns into the air, but leave that aside and recognize that what a bullet is built for is to get somewhere. Right? It has an implied trajectory. There's a target in mind. There's an aim if there's a bullet. But you can take that same bullet, and if you don't have a gun, you can add all of the explosive force without that gun, and you get a very different thing. Okay? What I'm saying to you tonight is that the problem with sexuality that the Bible presents, like I said, is, is not that sex is bad and to be avoided. It's that it's so good and so important that if you misaim, you do damage. Okay? That if you don't understand what it's for and if you don't use it how it was built, then it becomes not just destructive, but also unfulfilling. The reality is, yes, you use a gun to fire a bullet and you have a chance of hitting the target. You explode a bullet and you have no chance of hitting the target. But uh, it's not just that the explosion will do damage, whereas when it's controlled in a gun, it's, it's safer. It's also the fact that it doesn't do what it was meant to do. It never hits, it never makes impact. What we see in this passage tonight, even though it's just a perspective on a single issue, answer to a single question, which appears to be, because of what sex is, wouldn't it be better even if married people never did it? That appears to be what he's responding to. It's so practical, and yet the principles that he presents completely transform our understanding of sex. I'll show you what I mean. Here we are in chapter 7. He says in verse 1, 
Concerning what you wrote, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And here comes his rebuttal or his explanation on top of that. He says, but because of the temptation to his sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman his own husband. Now, another way that this has been often understood, and it's easy to understand it this way, is that this presents marriage as the remedy for lust, right? That because of all these bad sorts of sex, the, it get married and then it won't be a problem. Now, that interpretation may be appealing to you if you're single tonight. You might think that that's a valid way to understand the text. I will tell you as a married person, and every married person will back me up, that, that doesn't just, it just doesn't ring true with, with human experience, okay? Even if you really struggle with sex in some sort of way and then you get married, it doesn't just wipe away the problem. The idea that all sexual sinners are single is not <laughs> a tenable position. And you might even look at this and go, well, but Paul could think that because he was single. He tells us later in the passage he was single. Maybe he's speaking from inexperience and he gets it wrong. Aside from how Paul views his words coming out of his mouth of this letter, which he views as the word of God, as more than just the words of Paul, it's it's inter interesting here that he doesn't show ignorance to sexuality, but as we'll see, tremendous insight. And it's based on this broader reality of what scripture says. And also, just if you're curious, many scholars believe that although Paul isn't married while he wrote this letter, that he probably was at some time in his life. We know that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. And old Jewish law tells us that the people who were part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 leaders of Israel, had to be, were required to be married. And so maybe his wife died and he's now a widower. I think that's right. Anyways, maybe that's the cause of his singleness. Or maybe when he became a Christian, his wife left him. We don't know. Either way, he's single in this letter. But broad view of scripture makes it most likely that he's lived the married life, even though he currently lives the single life. But aside from that, aside from that, what he says here is not, A, that marriage is the remedy for sex, or for sexual temptation, excuse me. The reason I know that is because he's not talking about marriage here. Look again at what he says. Because of uh, temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Okay? He doesn't say each one should marry. He says have. And here's something that you may not have noticed in the text as we read it. Um, every single sentence, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, all of them reference the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. And all of them do it euphemistically. Okay? Actually, all the time we talk about sex, we use euphemism. Having sex is a euphemism, right? It's a weird use of the word have. There are more explicit ways that we could talk about sexuality, but in all languages, we have this tendency to euphemistically speak of it. And so even, in, even though in the ESV it says to have sexual relations, in the, in the actual language it says it's better not to touch. He's not just talking about any touch. He's not just talking about, you know, girls have cooties. He's using a euphemism, to touch a woman. In the second sentence, when he says have here, have his own wife, not have a wife, but have his own wife, and a woman not have a husband, but have her own husband, we should fill in the blanks and read this as having sexual relationship with his husband or wife. 
And so the idea here is not that marriage is the solution, but it's also not that the purpose of sex in marriage is to keep you from having sex with other people. What Paul is presenting here is not the important part of his argument. It's just a very obvious and practical aside to get us going. Okay? The recognition here is um, that sexual temptation is real. That if all these things are bad versions of a good thing, if they're all destructive versions that don't meet their aim, uh, that a practical way to avoid them is to have sex with your spouse. But I also want you to notice that the only viable option he sees for a valid sexual relationship here is there, in the confines or in the context, in the borders, in the small garden. The only place where sex is allowed to grow, according to the Bible, is in the covenant of marriage. And the Bible is very consistent on this boundary. As small as that garden is, even the word he uses here for sexual immorality, pornea, was constantly used by the Jews to talk about any other form of sexual activity. Premarital, extramarital, um, any form of sexual act that wasn't between a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. And so he, he does, he draws that same boundary again. Now, we have a tendency in our culture not to fall in the mistake of the traditional culture that says sex is a necessary evil that shouldn't be talked about and shouldn't be enjoyed. We instead fall in this one that says sex is a natural need and like any other need in your body, it should be expressed and it should be expressed in direct relationship to your desire. In other words, whatever you want, go for it because that's where sexual satisfaction is. Not only does our culture say that, but it goes further and it says if you're not having sexual satisfaction, then that's grounds for looking for it elsewhere. If you read from modern ethicists, sexual ethicists in our culture, they will consistently say that not being sexually satisfied in your marriage is grounds for divorce or cause to go get it somewhere else and maintain the marriage just in a different way. And they will say that you can't have a good marriage without a good sex life. But Paul speaks against that and draws the same boundary here and I would argue that the reason, as we'll see in verses 3 and 4, I would argue is because it is because of what sex is and what sex does. It's because there's a target involved, and if you don't hit the target, not only can you do damage, but you also, you also don't receive what you're aiming for. And so he puts it in marriage, as the rest of the scriptures does, because of what marriage is and because of what sex is for. Now, Paul demonstrates this for us in the strangest way. It is so regular for Paul when he's talking about marriage, male and female relationships, um, and sex to go to Genesis chapters 2 and 3. He does it consistently. Ephesians chapter 5, boom, he's there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, boom, he's there. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, boom, he's there. Over and over again, this is the pattern that he follows. Here he does not do that, even though it seems to be on his mind. Instead, in chapter 6, he goes a completely different direction. Read it with me, and then I'll explain what's going on here. Um, look at verse 15 of chapter 6. 
He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take then members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or, he says, this is what's important here in verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. To explain what sex is for, he doesn't look at a relationship between a husband and wife. He doesn't look as how it was created for Adam and Eve. He looks at, at prostitution. And he says, don't you understand that when you pay money for sex with a stranger, that the two become one flesh? Right? When we see people exchange their vows and that language of becoming one flesh is used, would we ever hold up a prostitution and say that there's some relationship between those two things? For Paul, there is. Here's why. Okay. Because sex, as it's foreseen in the Bible, is part of the sum total of what marriage is. And marriage is the full giving of yourself to another person. That's why over and over again, the, the language of the Song of Solomon is, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We'll see this play out very clearly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But what he's saying about prostitution is, can you really enter into a relationship for money with a woman that you have no intention of giving anything just to get sex? And is that okay? Are you giving the rest of who you are? Think here for a second about how the Bible views marriage as being a covenant relationship that lasts for the rest of your life that is not to be broken, okay? The Bible sees sex as being so powerful that outside of that context, it doesn't work. And it's for two reasons. One, because clearly and we we view this even in this culture as sex positive as we are clearly sex is something that's very private and very intimate right no matter how much we strip away and no matter how much we broadcast it on television there's still this recognition that taking off your clothes is not an everyday every person sort of thing but on top of that not only is it tremendously intimate but the Bible views it as a giving of yourself that must go along with the rest of the giving of yourself. So it's safe, right? Giving yourself to somebody who's already committed, who's not going to judge your performance, who's not going to walk away, who hasn't just given you yourself tonight or bought you dinner before you slept with them or, or made you promises in the future but hasn't yet kept them, but has actually committed to you for life, has given up their own freedoms to become a part of a new life with you. That's how marriage is seen in the Bible. That is a safe place for the vulnerability of sex. But it is also the only one where its aim hits the target. Because the goal of sex, as it's pictured here, is oneness. I've been thinking through this theory of addiction this morning. I don't know if it's right yet. But here's the way I've been thinking. What if addiction is always when we use something for what it's not for, and then we get stuck in the cycle of still trying to get what we want out of it, even though it can't be found. What if the best way to understand addiction is digging the same hole, even though there's no gold to be found, and so you just obsessively keep digging? What I'm saying to you tonight is that sex out of that confines has that same pattern of not doing what it's supposed to do, because you're trying to do something else with it. There are two things 
two things that our culture constantly brings to the table, and I'm not talking about out there. We are a part of this culture, okay? The way that we view sex today involves two components that go against the grain of this idea. The first is seen very easily in pornography, which is novelty, okay? Good sex is seen as variegated. Good porn is seen as new and fresh. That's the reason why the porn industry hasn't relied on a single centerfold for its entire history, right? It's the reason why if you've ever viewed porn, you, you don't gen to view this, generally view the same porn every day for years and years and years. What happens is you wire yourself then for novelty. And I would say that this is not just a porn problem, but it's the whole philosophy of sex that sex becomes performance and novelty oriented, and that's very different, a very different direction, a very different trajectory than if sex is about intimacy. Let me just show you the contrast that we're now in as a culture. If sex within marriage is about intimacy, but sex also involves novelty, and that novelty doesn't mean the growing of wrinkles or the adding of pounds or the losing of hair, then you've actually made marriage harder, haven't you? It becomes a worse place for this to happen than anything else. Locking down, you know, into a permanent relationship is, is like accepting the depreciation of that relationship and settling for less, which is what some people in our culture hold to. But if sex is about intimacy, about two becoming one flesh, if it's about this part and partial expression that is both the consummating of that oneness, the maintaining of that oneness, and an expression of that oneness, then novelty is... is aiming at the wrong thing. And that's how it's presented here. Here's the second principle that I want you to notice, and I'll contrast it with the way we view sex. Verse 3, he says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. That is revolution written down. And I know it probably doesn't hit you that way tonight because the revolution already happened, okay? Listen to what Paul is saying here, and before you hear it, I want you to hear the culture that he's speaking in. The Roman world that Paul lived in, that he wrote this letter in, had a double standard of sexuality, and it's one that you can probably relate to because it still exists today. It says that the sexual requirements for men are different than the ones for women. And so women are seen as sexual property, and men need the boundaries beyond the confines of a traditional monogamous relationship to operate. And so it was expected and, and understood in Roman culture that you had a wife for the bearing of legitimate children, a concubine for romance, and you visited prostitutes for your physical needs. And you can see this repeated over and over again in all of the great minds of Greek culture, okay, where Romans took shape of this culture in Paul's day. Here he says something that is tremendously revolutionary. He says, men, you need to give your wife the conjugal rights. He says, men, your body is not your own, but belongs to your wife. Now remember here, especially if you're a, critique of, uh, a critic of Christianity, isn't Paul supposed to be some sort of misogynist? Isn't he some sort of bigot? Hasn't he perpetuated patriarchal culture? I would say this is exhibit A that you haven't looked at all of what Paul says. He brings a, mu a mutuality and an equality to the bedroom, and listen to me, that is not predated by any understanding written down in recorded history. No statement that sees this on equal grounds exists before this statement right here. And the reason why it doesn't hit us today is because we tend to assume this. And we fear when it's not understood. 
there's something more important here than just the mutuality or the reciprocity of the sexual relationship. I want you to notice the angle that he comes at it for. Listen to what he says again. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. What he doesn't say is you should take what's yours. Do you see that? Notice how he says it in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. He doesn't say she belongs to you or even he belongs to her. He says you belong to them. The difference between those two statements is miles apart. Okay? Here's the other place where I believe that our culture has sex tremendously wrong. And this is not just a value assessment. It has to do with hitting the target. It has to do with what it's for. Biblically, sex is about giving. In our culture, sex is about taking. Okay. This is the reason why the Bible sees all sex outside of a committed marriage relationship till death do us part as being wrong because it is inherently selfish. It says, I want the pleasure of sex. I want the vulnerability of sex. I want you to give yourself to me, but I'm not willing to give all of myself to you. Like I said, I'll, I'll give you payment. I'll give you dinner. I'll give you a relationship that's, you know, I'm out of here whenever I want to be. But marriage says something different. And sex, therefore, is something different. And what he says here is that the way you approach the bedroom as a married couple is not, I need to get my needs met, but how can I fulfill their needs? Do you hear the difference there? It's a completely different thing. And here's why it matters. Let's take porn as an example again. As you go through the um, use and the habit of porn, what does it create in you? Porn is inherently a single person thing. Okay? I, it doesn't mean that you can't look at it with other people. What I'm saying is what happens in pornography is it wires you to say sexuality is about gratifying my needs. The other person doesn't even enter into it. Right? It's self-oriented. Porn is inherently self-oriented. I'm not saying that porn has made us misunderstand sex. I'm saying that our misunderstanding of sex has made porn viable and valuable as a part of our life. That is our entire approach to sexuality because it is our entire approach to life. You see, here's where we get under the layer of the first reality. Sex is this way because all of life is this way. The Bible says constantly the way we think about things is about us. How can I get my ends? What does it mean to me? When we break the rules, when we decide that the rules of the Bible are not bad, effectively what you're saying is, I know what's better for me than God does. And you're going out to get what's your right. Get what you need. Get what you want. The problem that I'm presenting to you tonight is not just that God is angry and you've been bad. It's that what you're really after whether you know it or not, whether you participate in acts that preserve it or pursue it or not, you will never find in that direction. That if sex was created to be a giving, if sex was created to be inherently an offering of love to another person, if sex was created to pursue this oneness and to invest in relationship uniquely against all other human relationships, then you, it's not just that if you, you know, explode a bullet it causes damage, it's that you won't hit the target. And I would say that's why pornography is so addictive. Because you never have enough. Because it never does what you're really looking for. 
and even those who believe in what they call casual sex, that sex is so not a big deal that it can just be enjoyed without consequences. They may not be able to remember the last hundred people they had sex with by name, but I bet you they remember the first. There's a sense where we all are looking for the same thing, even if we've forgotten that we're on the wrong road. And Paul gets that. And when he lays this out, the thing that I want you to see tonight is that the sexual ethic of the Bible is three things. Sex is good. Sex is an expression of and a containing of and a moving for and even a metaphor for intimacy. And sex is self-giving, not self-taking. And so what Paul says here is that the married couple should be engaging in sexuality because that's what its purpose is. And that it should be engaging it in, in this way because that's what it was built for. Now practically, what does this mean? First off, two very quick points before we look at verse 5. One, obviously, obviously here, it means that married couples should be having regular and consistent sexual activity. There's no way to get away from that in this text. It's very clear. In fact, he's going to give an exception in a second, and it's a very narrow exception. But the second one that I think is really clear in here, if it's about satisfying the other, then it says here that in the marriage relationship, sex should be an ongoing conversation. And here's what I think is mind-blowing about our culture. This is the one place where we're still uncomfortable talking about sex, even though we talk about it everywhere else. But it's implied in the text that there's a communication going here. And it's not the performance communication that we're all so afraid of. Because selfish sexuality, self-serving sexuality, sexuality with outside of the covenant, built into it is performance. And so when we ask a question like, how was that? What we're expecting is scorecards, and that's terrifying, right? And one of the glories of sex in the marriage relationship is they're not going to go, yeah, I'm done. I'll see you later, right? You already have the commitment. You already have the love. You already have the unconditional love up front. But what does it mean further than that? Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. The word there he uses for deprive is very strong. He used it in the last chapter and it was translated defraud. Here's what I'm telling you tonight. That according to the Bible, because of sexuality's purpose and what it's for, cheating is not just having sex outside of marriage. It's not having sex in marriage. He says, don't defraud one another. Pursue this. Go after this. Engage in this. And he says, even if not, what does he say in verse 5? He says, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. Okay, so the first thing he says here is you don't withhold sex. You can agree to defer. You can agree to set it aside. Second thing he says here, except perhaps an agreement for a limited time. Okay, so he says don't do this for a long time. And more importantly for tonight, just because it's so practical, not indefinitely. When it says limited time, isn't the implication here, isn't the implication that you've kind of put a date on the calendar, right? You have an end in view. And then notice this, and this one's really important. He says, why? That you may devote yourselves to prayer, okay? Not because, I've got to be really careful here, not because of any other reason. And I, I don't even think that means there aren't other good reasons, 
But he says, here is a good reason to devote yourselves to prayer. And I want you to notice something here. Two things. That prayer is inherently still relational. Don't imagine here it's like, you know, we really need to fast from sex, so I'm going to go out of town and pray. No, the idea is in the married one, oneness relationship that you're praying together instead of having sexual relations together. Wouldn't that be the obvious thing to expect here? And so it's like a fast, but it's a married fast. It's not from food, it's from sex, but it's to do something that's more important. To maintain your relationship with God, to seek the Lord together. And the obvious truth of prayer as you see it in the marriage relationship is that when you do such an intimate thing, it's still a pursuing of intimacy, is it not? In fact, for many newly married couples, praying together is the hardest part because it feels so awkward to do something so private. But not only that, he says, even when you do that, he says, then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says that if you don't make a big deal out of pursuing sexual intimacy in, re, uh, in marriage, you're leaving yourself open to demonic attack. Okay. He's recognizing here that when we're not pursuing a good thing, it's, it's not just not making progress. It, there's a danger in that. And I'm not going to spend time really unpacking that. I just think it's a self-evident reality. And what he says here is, is pursue your relationship. Invest in your relationship. Do these things. Now, if you're single tonight, I recognize that you might look at all of this and you feel like, well, this was a wasted night. There was nothing here for me. But there are two really important things that you should draw from this. Okay. First, the Bible here sees clearly and implies that sex is not ultimate and sexual gratification is not equal, not equal to a fulfilled life. And if you don't believe me, just come back because when we talk about singleness, Paul is going to say something shocking again that's not shocking in our culture where most people are single, but in his day was unbelievable. He's going to say it's good to be single. just point out the obvious not only is Paul currently as he writes this letter not having sex but Jesus our own Messiah was single God himself in the flesh came and lived a life that was glorifying to God without being married a life that was self-fulfilling and full of joy without being married even the idea of stopping this for the sake of prayer recognizes that sex is something else let me put it back in my gun metaphor you're playing war games right now, but even the marriage relationship is only a picture of something else. It's not the war itself. I said earlier that there's a sense where there's embedded metaphors in the Christian life. There's embedded metaphors in the world that we live in. Sex is one of those metaphors. Jesus himself says that sex is not an eternal reality, that the sexual act and the relationship of marriage is a here, now, human beings on earth happening. And Paul says... That's what marriage is about. In his greatest chapter on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, where he lays out the whole picture, he spends all this time telling us how we should behave, and he says, I'm speaking to you of a, of a mystery, of a secret, but this is really talking about Jesus and his church. He says that the entire marriage relationship points beyond itself. All of the skirmishes and the scrimmages with our gun working, all of our, our practice at the target range is really about something else. And I recognize that's where the metaphor breaks down. But nonetheless, there's something beyond. There's something greater. Here's the reality that sex makes clear to us, okay? It's that we are relational beings. 
that we were made and created for relationship. And I know it's a little bit controversial to say, but what I'm telling you is that the sexual act and the sexual relationship within the confines of marriage points to our need for God. It's a very physical manifestation. It's a very, um, you know, visceral pointing, and it's our relationship with God is a whole lot more than that, okay? But if it's really about intimacy and if it's really about self-giving, in fact, the reason why we should live this way as Christians in sexuality is because of who Jesus was and what he did. Here's how this works out. The greatest act of love ever portrayed on earth, ever carried out on earth, according to the Apostle John, was the death of Jesus Christ. He says, by this we know love. If you want the definition of love, John says you look at the cross. By this we know love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So often, love really means self-love. But biblically, it says, if you want to understand what love is and what love's for, the greatest act of love and the most satisfying form of love is in self-giving. We've all experienced that in Jesus Christ. We've recognized and received that undeserved and being or, uh, unlovable and uh, not performing up to standards, Jesus still comes and says, I'm going to make you my bride. I've chosen you. There's nothing you can do to get out of this relationship. There's, there's nothing you can do that will make me not love you, and I'm proving it by taking care of all of the problems up front and dying for your sins. Jacoby mentioned that we have an outward God, and that makes us outward people. This is that same thing. It changes the way we view the purpose, the value, the beauty of human life. It turns sexuality itself inside out because as much as it sounds like a guy riding a bicycle, it's really pointing to something else. And it was written by the author of the story to draw our attention to a bigger picture. Even when it says in Genesis that it's not good that man should be alone, the clear and first implication of that is that we need other people. But the deeper one is that we were made for a relationship with God. Now just to close tonight, there's another reason why this is so important for singles. Not only because sex isn't ultimate, there's something beyond it, there's something that's pointing to, and even if you never get a chance to pull the trigger on the target, you still get to enjoy the full reality that it's just practice for. But the second reason is because because many of us have this miswi miswired view of sexuality and then marriage just becomes a way to meet those same selfish ends. Right? And so even if you desire to be married, even if you're pursuant of marriage, if you don't understand what sex is and what sex is for, you're setting yourself up for misunderstanding. And I want to tell you tonight on my 11th anniversary that I'm not talking to you in this passage from the finish line of a fully achieved and functioning Christian sexual ethic. There's been lots of fallen and mistake and damage and reading this passage was terribly convicting for me because I'm still prone to the, all of these mistakes in my own relationship with my wife. But I will tell you that I've tasted enough to realize that there is something beyond self-serving pleasure and it's not different than pleasure, it's a greater pleasure. And I have learned enough to know that the thing that I've always been searching for in my life, in some ways the closest I've ever gotten is with my wife. So maybe I'm a little farther down the road, maybe I'm not. But I've walked enough of it to see that I'm on the right track. My encouragement to you tonight would be to recognize 
to recognize that this whole sexual ethic that we almost feel like we're born with and is self-evident of what sex is and what sex does, you have inherited from a culture, could be wrong. And I would just ask you to observe with your own eyes in your own life if the direction you're heading has been a satisfying and completing one. Are you less lonely and more fulfilled today because, of the, because you've done the things that God would never allow you to do because you've stuck out on your own and made your own destiny? And I encourage you, I challenge you to consider if what you're looking for is maybe buried in a different hole. Let's pray. God, the logic is so simple. Either these things are true and therefore tremendously important or they're not. Either these things are right and we are wrong or not. But the consequences are so extreme. Either we will enjoy the first fruits, the first tastes of what you're offering us in heaven, or we will waste our time digging in the wrong place. Either we will find what we're looking for or we will continue to look despite the obvious frustration in the wrong place. So I pray, God, that you would open our eyes. David knew what sexual sin was like, and he prayed, not just forgive me, but create in me a clean heart. The problem with my sexuality is not them. It's not temptation. It's not because I couldn't avoid. It's not because I couldn't get away. It's not because the world is skewed or bent or, or these types of things. It's something inside me. There's something wrong with my heart. There's something that we can't do in this. I pray, Lord, that you would do that, that you would create a clean heart in us, that you would skew this in a different direction, that we would pursue what these things only point to, and that we would aim in the right direction, and that we would be comfortable with the confines that may even seem like tight quarters, like the barrel of a gun, knowing that that's what turns something so powerful into trajectory. That that's what accomplishes the aim. I ask that you'd help us with these things in Jesus' name. Amen.